on episode 135 of the Vincast, I chat with Master Sommelier Jonathan Ross. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And thank you to everyone who listened to the most recent episode of the podcast with Nina Kaplan, journalist and writer based in London, who talked about her background and most importantly, her brand new book called The Wandering Vine. Uh, I've continued to read the book. I'm really enjoying it. I highly recommend it. Uh, and you can get a copy of the book from the Bloomsbury website, which is the publisher, but make sure to set the location to Australia. And if you put in the code IntrepidWino, one word, all lowercase, you can get a 30% discount, but you can only do that until the end of May 2018. So make sure to get a copy of the book. Please do support Nat. Nina, as you would any of my podcast guests, uh, and please do also go to the Vincast uh, page for on iTunes to leave a five star rating and review. Uh, I really appreciate the feedback, as do my guests. So for this week's episode, I'm very excited to welcome my first master sommelier, Jonathan Ross, uh, who originally is from the United States, has been living in Australia for the last year or so with his fiancée, Jane Lopez, who works at Attica, uh, arguably Australia's best restaurant and one of the most important in the world. Uh, Jonathan has uh, been doing lots of different things in the last year in Australia, including working vintage and making uh, some of his own wine, in fact. Uh, and he was uh, very, very generous in donating some time to talk about his background, uh, particularly in the lead up to becoming a master sommelier, which is no mean feat, I can tell you. Uh, so I do hope you enjoy the episode. Please do stick around until the end to find out how you can get in contact with Jonathan and myself. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Jonathan, uh, thank you very much for making some time to sit down. Welcome on the Vincast. Uh, My pleasure, pleasure to, to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I start every episode of the podcast asking my guests if they can remember that the first interaction they had with wine that's actually kind of had a profound impact and possibly started them on the path towards a career and a life in wine. Um, well, I think I was much younger, familiar with my um, parents' very one-dimensional kind of exposure to wine. My mother would keep a bottle of you know, Behringer White Zinfandel in the refrigerator that it would take her three weeks to get through. And my dad would be a beer drinker in general. And I know that he liked a few different things. And um, I just remember working in a restaurant and tasting something pretty basic. I think it was Markham Merlot. Um, and being like, oh, this is kind of interesting and bring it home and giving it to him and like seeing him kind of light up over it and so forth. And I think that was probably the first time I realized that wine... Um, was a really easy way to share um, joy. Um, but then I can distinctly remember a bottle of 1983 um, Emilio Pepe Montepulciano de Bruzzo that I was had been working with wine probably for a few years and didn't really understand the idea behind mature wine. Um, and I remember tasting that wine and kind of being blown away um, from there. And I think at that point I was I was really truly hooked. Um, for life. <laughs> um, we, have, we have a uh, yes, a uh, witness to our podcast our recording cat, here. She's 
brought over from the U.S. Her oh, name, wow. Her name is Botrytis. <laughs> um, Bo for short. Um, Jane got her while living in Chicago going to school, and uh, she's lived in Nashville and New York before moving to Australia last year. Wow, she's traveled more she's, than, uh, yeah, she's more than most good Australians, passport. I would say. Um, it's so funny. I've had, uh, what, 120 plus guests on the podcast and many times people talk about, you know, that first wine that, you know, or, or a mature wine that they tasted that kind of set them on the path. And I'm like, oh, wouldn't that be so nice if I could taste that wine? This is the first time I think that I actually have had that wine. Yeah. And it's, I think it's good. They, you know, they release, um, recork and release that wine probably they keep doing it every year still i don't think it's it's run out you can still find it um from the importer but, yes uh, form another a former guest of the podcast anthony Dunn yeah. with mondo imports cool they are the importer of media pepe so if awesome. you're interested in, in in trying some beautiful old abruzzese wine yeah i think i uh after learning about it and understanding kind of things a bit more i realized that with that producer there's um for every dozen there's probably two really fantastic bottles about four messed up bottles, and then the rest are pretty much good to go. <laughs> you can you definitely still enjoy them. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so where did we, where are you from originally? Where did you um, grow up? I grew up in New Jersey, um, outside of New York, probably about an hour's drive from New York City. Uh, my parents are both retired public school teachers. Um, it was a pretty small um, suburban town. I think when we moved there, I was maybe four or five and still no traffic lights. So pretty small town. Surrounded Co- by coastal farms. or? Um, not too coastal. Um, maybe a half hour's drive to the coast. Okay. Um, so pretty centrally located. Um, so yeah, summers, you drive to the beach. And mm-hmm. Pretty pretty chill upbringing. Um, nothing kind of out of the, out of the ordinary. Um, how, how did you kind of get into working in restaurants initially? Um, I think I would say that restaurants got into me, um, just going through school, went through high school and so forth, and then graduated and went on to college. And during college was working in restaurants while going to school. What were you studying? Um, originally sports medicine. Um, then I switched to architecture. Were you, were you a sporty guy in, in school? Yeah, I, I grew up, um, what was your sport of choice? Football, soccer, baseball, a little bit of wrestling. Um, so definitely um, a good mix. And um, yeah, so I originally went and studied sports medicine um, and pledged a fraternity, had a really good time, was not invited back to school next year. Um, I'm guessing in the fraternity you weren't drinking like Premier Cru Chablis. No, not at all. No, not at all. It was it was pretty pretty nasty actually. Keg kegs, bro. Kegs and yeah, it was really rough, rough, Tequila. rough nights. Um, and then yeah, so the next year I went to a local school and studied architecture. Local as in in New Jersey. Local as in New Jersey. So that was in a different part of New York. Um, a local school that um, was more accepting to people who kind of were experimenting in, in, in college uh, away from home. And I started studying architecture and went through that and was, um, that's when I really kind of started working in restaurants at the same time. And I just remember having so much more fun at work than I was in school. And 
after a years and a half of our architecture. Plus, um, plus you get paid for it. Plus you get paid for it. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah, after a year and a half of our, of school, I was like, you know, this isn't really for me. Um, I definitely have the, you know, the creative part to it, but I'm pretty sloppy and I can't really, you know, write very well. I'm just kind of, you know, my drawings were just a mess and so forth. And, mm. um, from computer aided drafting and things like that, it was great. But when it came to really kind of sitting down, the arts side of it was, was pretty tough for me to be neat and organized. Yeah. Um, so then took some time off, uh, still working in restaurants and just remember switching jobs and making this very, um, cognizant decision to find a job in a restaurant where I would learn more about wine and learn more about restaurants. And at that point I realized, Oh, I can probably go to school for this too. Um, and then went to school and got a degree in hospitality and restaurant management. Was um, that, so was that at a school that, that was at a college that, level. So yeah, there's so essentially a college degree in, um, restaurant management and it's really sort of like a culinary school or something. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily a culinary degree that while there were some culinary courses, it was very much about hotel and hospitality management, sure. things like that. Sure, sure. There's a lot of kind of, you know, work study things where you're so kind of like operating more, a pretend restaurant. More like a technical school. More, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, work and study type. Work and study type stuff, yeah. yeah. Again, all the time while I was going to school and so, um, working in restaurants and so forth and um, – and that all happened in New Jersey while I was working in restaurants in New Jersey before moving into New York. What was the first kind of re- restaurant that had more of an impact on you and, and, and maybe you were working with a, a team or a, pater- a person that really influenced you a lot? Yeah. Um, I'd say the first restaurant where I realized that I really enjoyed the atmosphere and I said, this is where I want to be and where I want to spend my time. And was at a country club in New Jersey. It was called Forsgate Country Club. And there were, um, three people. Um, there was this woman, Jessica Rodriguez. Um, and then two guys, I can remember Jason Delasanti and Jeff Nishura. And they were just like, you know, I was young. I was like 20 and 21 years old and a goofball and just having the time of my life. And there was like this camp counselor relationship with them. And it, but it developed into just a, real enjoyable wonderful atmosphere and i remember saying something them saying to me well you just always have to have fun and i said well if it's not if i'm not having fun it's not worth doing it and i feel like that's a theme that has always existed in working in restaurants and working with wine for me that um it is very fun and if it's not fun it's probably not worth doing hard work and fun don't have to be mutually exclusive exactly and and honestly they shouldn't they should kind of coexist as much as possible um so I remember kind of being there and um, actually ending up getting in trouble and kind of being someone who always got away with murder um, at that point in my life. Um, probably pushed it too far and um, a zero tolerance policy had to be executed and it was the first time I ever got fired, um, which was a good thing. I then moved into another restaurant in New Jersey and again, looked at, okay, where can I go? Where am I going to learn more? And um, went and worked for a chef who was the slow food uh, founder of the New Jersey Slow Food Chapter, which is the international organization dedicated to, you know, s- sourcing food sustainably and preparing it with kind of that sincerity. And um, I learned about, you know, bartending with fresh juices with him. And I was the first time I ever went to a farm that produced food. And um, I worked with this really wonderful little Italian maitre d' named Giancarlo Squiteri, who um, actually went to school at 
uh, hospitality schools in Switzerland and was just this really, like, when you close your eyes and you picture this little charming Italian maitre d' that can do anything, he was it. Um, and again, just kind of really started to learn a little bit more about wine there and so forth. And um, from there, I moved on to a restaurant in New Jersey called Stage Left. I was there for about two and a half years. And I think that was when I truly first understood the world of the restaurant industry and the world of wine and what it could be. Um, I did everything from take their van to the green market in New York or to the fish market and get on the phone with the chef and purchase for the restaurant um, just on my own because I thought it was fun. I would go pick strawberries and tomatoes before going to work for them. Um, I ran their bar program. I was a sommelier there. I was a maitre d' there. Um, you know, I was working with things, you know, like 40-year-old First Growth Bordeaux and Nikem and Old Burgundy when I was, you know, 22 years old um, under their their stewardship. Uh, and it was there that I learned about the court of Master Sommeliers, um, the kind of maitre d', and then very much maitre d', or maitre d'hotel was the general manager of the restaurant, um, had just passed his certified exam. And I remember telling them that I was going to go on a camping trip and went and took the intro exam. Um, and came back with the intro pin and then later on, you know, took the certified exam. And um, at that point, he and I were the only two people in New Jersey who had ever taken the certified exam, which was kind of a big deal because I think at that point there were probably already 65 or 70 MSs in the U.S. Um, and was there for, for quite some time and just was exposed to, to the entire industry under them and probably... With that, while it was such a positive experience, it meant that there was a time in my life where I would need to move on and go work in New York City. Um, I kind of always looked like it as going to work with the big boys and so forth. And um, At that point, that was when I moved uh, into New York. So in the early stages, how did you actually go about kind of educating yourself about wine, um, particularly before you, know, you went away to, to sit at quartermaster sommelier exams? You know, I think... Um, when it comes to really anything in this industry, you are an apprentice and it really, um, you really need to surround yourself with people that um, are leaders who want to share their culture and their experiences and can point you in the right directions. Every time that I advanced in the court, it was a result of me being around people in an, in an environment where other people were doing it or other people had traveled that path to show that path. I wasn't a trailblazer. Um, you know, I, I think to, you know, another MS in New Zealand, Cameron Douglas, he was very much, and pardon the pun, alone on his own island with no help um, and did it on his own, um, which was not what I had to do. I was in a place that was, you know, an hour's drive from the greatest wine market in the world. Um, and because of that... I hope no one from London's listening to this. No, that, that's fine. That disagree. They would understand. <laughs> um, they would understand greatly, actually. Um, but I think that, uh, yeah, so it was definitely just being around people who knew more, were more experienced. And that was always kind of the driving force behind when I went to go work for a job. I remember, always remember at times there were people maybe that were, you know, kind of the the, the top gun at a, at a job or at a restaurant. And it would always seem that that person ended up moving on fairly early after I would start and saying, man, I wish I had more time with that person. That's that person is like legit. I remember working at this one restaurant in New Jersey, the Italian place. And 
the head waiter was this guy he spoke Italian. He knew everything about Italian wine. He was super suave and smooth. And after two months of me working there, he went to go work at, you know, run the wine program for some restaurant in New York. And I was like, shit, he's gone. Now what am I going to do? Um, and I think just being able to find people like that, that, that motivate you, that you want to be around and you want to learn from is, is everything in this industry, be it wine, be it your cooking. I think any chef would, would agree with that, that it takes those people in your life who are paying it forward to allow you to move forward. When, as you were sort of starting off and, and moving up, um, and kind of wanting to push yourself and, and, you know, get more experience, what kind of, what was your motivation? Was it a question of if I want to work in this better restaurant, I need to kind of improve my knowledge and, and, you know, get a higher qualification or was it that you just wanted to push yourself? Did you just want to know more? Yeah. I, I, I think the qualification is, you know, I mean, just to kind of go backwards for a moment from that, the time in between, I took about four years between passing my certified and, and trying to pass the advanced. And in that, I gained valuable management experience, launched a restaurant as a GM, and those things made me capable of getting those qualifications. And I think a misconception with the court and about qualifications in in general is that they don't test your preparation for that exam. They test your entire body of work. Yeah. And I think, I don't know that I knew that then, but I know that that's why I was successful at the times that I was, because I was so enthralled by the work. I never wanted wine to be, I always said wine was a part of the whole. It wasn't a whole for me and it still isn't. Um, and so for me, it was about, it was competitive. It was about wanting to know everything. And it was just like, wow, knowing all the scotches behind the bar was fun. I don't know why it was fun, but it was just fun. And it wasn't, it, it didn't have any effort to it. Um, beverage, wine, alcohol, whatever you want to call it, was the first thing I actually really purposefully studied mm -hmm. in life. And mm -hmm. it's really the only thing I've ever studied. Mm -hmm. um, I was always kind of a, a, a average to above average student through a little bit of paying attention and not a ton of hard work and being distracted all the time. But I think when it came to wine, that was the first time I actually put hours in books, you know, because I wanted to. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it was never a, let me get a qualification to get this job. It was always, you know, I'm going to go somewhere and learn from that place and work hard at that place and see where it takes me. Um, and I can get that job because of what I've done. And if I need to fall into the fold and start at the beginning at a new job, that was understandable. There's so many restaurants where you would leave one as a captain or a head waiter or a bartender or whatever, and you'd start at the bottom running food again. And as long as you progressed in the food chain of restaurants and, you know, quality and skill level of the general employee there, you were learning something as you went back through it. Um, so for me, it was, I think, more about that and less about a qualification. Mm. I also think it was at a time when the culinary school and enrollment and just the idea of purposefully working in a restaurant for a career was very new and novel still. I remember in the restaurants that I would work in, I was surrounded by people who were going to college for something else or um, using it as a means to an end because they wanted to be an actor or somewhat. And I was one of, if not the only person at time who said, I want to do this for a living. This is my career. This is my career. And just the fact that I was walking the door saying that 
got me a job mm-hmm. because um, I was still kind of alone in that. Where that's and I and I think in the U.S. that's changed quite a bit. I don't know that that's really necessarily the same in Australia. There's still not a lot of people who that I've ex- been exposed to who walk into a restaurant and say, "This is my career." Mm. Um, in the U.S., that's changed quite a bit. Um, but yeah, at the beginning, kind of, I would say the first five, seven years of my career, um, I was often the only person or one of few in the front of a house in, in the dining room that was saying, this is my career. I think possibly one of the only exceptions to that rule would probably be in LA, where there's still that stigma of uh, people working in hospitality. So it's like, oh, you're just someone who, you know, is needing needing to support yourself whilst you're going to auditions because you want to be the next big star. Certainly. I think in, in any, and, and honestly, that exists in New York. Every job I've had in New York, there's always, you know, someone who's going to school or someone who wants to be an actor. And I On think Broadway. we run into that mm-hmm. in in any major market. Um, but even still, in, in LA, there are people who... Um, you know, are there to be legit. I think, you know, my... Do you, do you think that actually has more to do with the quality of, of the dining scene? And potentially, I don't know if... It, I'm, I'm just, no, you're, I'm just, you're I'm totally just, right. I'm just guessing, because I, I, I kind of have this feeling that the LA dining scene has really only got, you know, a lot yeah. more serious in the last sort of 10 to 15 years. Most certainly. Whereas New York has been a serious dining city Definitely. for a long time. Yeah, I think that's that's... You know. People wouldn't go to LA before no. to follow a career in hospitality, whereas right. you would go to New York. Right. You might go to Chicago. Yeah. You know, like so. So I think now, obviously, it's changed, and and there are a lot. There's a lot more a possibility uh, in a lot of cities in the US now right. where you could follow. You know, people would happily relocate to Seattle or to oh, yeah. or to Denver or Austin because of a great chef there. You're, I mean, that's spot on. I think just in general, the ability to focus on restaurants as a career throughout the U.S., not even in big, big cities anymore. There's people in minor hub cities and things where, you know, people are focusing on restaurants as a career. It's, but, yeah, L.A., I think... Um, save for maybe a couple small establishments that the success weighed on a few people's shoulders that were trying to manage those, you know, aspiring actors. Um, it has not been a place where someone would say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go, you know, to the culinary school in, in Napa and then I'm going to go down to L.A. and run this wine program. That was not something that people did mm. or thought about. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's that's totally accurate. Yeah, you said that uh, you kind of felt like this competitive urge um, as far as furthering your career. Do you think that you've been a competitive person your whole life or did you find that competitive um, part of yourself when you found this thing that you could be passionate about? I think that I had always been a competitive person throughout my life, but I think that I didn't always necessarily have a, a creative outlet or outlet to be competitive within. Sure. Um, I would say that, you know, always played sports my whole life and, and, and so forth. And, you know, was always, uh, I would say I was an average, you know, member of a team. I was never, you know, the star, you know, football player. I was the franchise player. Exactly. No, I was (laughs) never that person. Um, and then honestly, like even through school, I would, you know, be that person who like, snuck into the over you know I snuck into the honors courses or snuck into the um you know 
advanced courses just, you know, through presence, but, um, and that would always cause for competition. Like, okay, well, I'm here and now I want to excel at it, but never really push myself. So I think the interest in being competitive was always there, but the, I guess, real avenue to apply myself in competitive, mm -hmm. competitive nature didn't necessarily exist fully. And I think it was the first time where I was actually ever competitive with myself. Mm -hmm. And which I think is more important. I actually would challenge myself and, and set goals for myself, real goals that felt good to attain rather than like, Oh, I'll enroll in school and I'll take this class. And oh, I would have liked a better grade. But at the end of the day, did I really try that hard throughout the semester? Not really. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think it was there just, uh, a creative outlet for it now. Mm. So the, the move to New York was probably the, the big serious first step yeah. in your career. Was it a, a fairly significant change in your the lifestyle and surroundings <laughs> and the, some of the people you were, you were around, other people involved in, in the industry and people involved in wine? Yeah. Um, New York was, um, and looking back on it, I think realizing how kind of ridiculous it was. I, I lived... Um, at that time at my parents' house, which was about a half hour's drive from a train station, which was an hour each way on the train into the city. So I was going into the city and found a job um, pretty quickly at uh, a restaurant called Bar Blanc, who was opened by the former chef de cuisine of, um, oh, no, I'm forgetting his name, um, in uh and he was in Chicago, uh, I think true, um, Anthony Tremont. But uh, his name is Cesar Ramirez. He's now the chef of Brooklyn Fair in New York, big three Michelin stars, so forth. And kind of just, it was a new restaurant, walked in, got a job. They tried, tried me out. That restaurant was, you know, very volatile. And myself and a variety of other people, I think we worked there for about five or six weeks. And that was the end of it. Um, and then just through... Constantly looking on, you know, job boards and so forth, found a um, one Michelin-starred restaurant called Anthos, which was the only Greek uh, Michelin-starred restaurant outside of Greece, um, ran by a few different people. They had a couple restaurants and went and interviewed and um, ended up working there, was brought on as a manager and then named the assistant general manager, um, worked with that restaurant for... I don't know, eight months and then moved to another restaurant that they had just opened and was involved in that. But my, my work life was, um, wake up, you know, at eight o'clock in the morning, drive to the train station, get into work by 10. I'd work until, you know, 10 or 11 at night. Um, and the way the train schedule worked was the last train to New Jersey was at, I think, like 11.30 during the week and 12.30 a.m. on the weekends. From from where? From New York to New Jersey. But like from Penn Station. So from like Penn Station, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then the next train would be the 4 a.m. train, which we would always dub <laughs> the, the drunk train. Sure. So obviously working in New York, big bright lights, get to go out with people and go drink, you know, was like first real adult life experiences, having a job, working, going out for drinks after work in, in New York was incredible. So I'd get out of work maybe at 11, maybe the train was at 1130. I'd be like, oh, screw it. I'm not going to go on the train. I'll just stay out and drink all night and take the four o'clock train home. 
So take that train home, get to my car for five, five thirty, drive home to my parents' house for half an hour, drunk and tired, um, and then sleep for a few hours, turn around and do for eight again. o'clock. Yeah. And those were my days. Um, and they were ridiculous. I mean, there were times where I would fall asleep on the train home and end up at the wrong train station. And it was just like a month and a half of craziness. And I remember my monthly commuting bills were about six hundred dollars. Um, after a few months of that, I was able to rent a room in an apartment in Queens for less than $600 a month. Yeah. So, um, when I realized that this was ridiculous, I just converted into, um, renting a room that let stayed in that room for a few months. Um, and I didn't really know the person how I don't even remember how I found that apartment. I think that person was applying for a job where I worked and didn't actually end up getting hired. Um, and then ended up moving in with a friend who had an apartment in Harlem, in West Harlem. And I know we say Harlem, and you're like, it's kind of a little scary, but it was a really wonderful neighborhood. It was 145th Street and St. Nicholas Avenue. We lived right across the street from a police precinct and a fried chicken shop. Um, so very safe and very fed mm-hmm. <laughs> in Harlem. Yeah. Um, Soul food. Yeah, I was able to see Yankee Stadium out at my window um, across the river to the Bronx, and it was a great time. And I was up there for, you know, I guess another six or eight months. And then New York has this way of making new couples move in with each other after dating for not very long because rent is so high. Sure. So if you make, you know... $60,000 a year and someone else makes $60,000 a year, you can afford a one bedroom on the island of Manhattan below 100th Street, you know, for $1,800, $2,000 a month. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so did that and from there ended up probably living in, yeah, Queens, Harlem, Brooklyn, Upper East Side, Upper West Side, Financial District, and Soho in my time in New York. <laughs> Lots of living in these places for like two or three months or something. No, after, <laughs> I mean, like after that, you live for, I mean, and I would say that I lived in, you know, Queens for a few months, Harlem for a few months, and then the Upper West Side for three years, the East Side for two years, Financial District, Brooklyn for two years, Financial District for a year, and then Soho for, I think, two and a half years. Mm. Um, and just kind of the nature, your, your rent goes up, but it's easy just to find a new place, and it's pretty. Unless you're spending over $2,500 a month in rent, the apartment that you're in probably is wears out its welcome after a couple of years. Sure. And uh, you can move on. So, um, yeah, that apartment, that world of, of, uh, of people, restaurants specifically, moving around every couple of years is, is the norm in, in Manhattan. Yeah, I, I can imagine it. It's annoying. In, in New York. You rent a U-Haul and you do everything yourself. And it's just awful. But <laughs> got to be done. Got to be done. Got to be done. It's a choice. Um, so where were you when you kind of started to get a bit of attention? People started to say, oh, this guy is going to be serious. And, you know, what was the, the really big name venue that you were working in? Um, well, I, I think that I was able to connect at least and become a student of the people who were really shaping the industry. Um, it was right before I took my advanced, I went to go work at a restaurant called Oceana. 
So I was working in a, a, a pretty incredible steakhouse as a sommelier in the Time Warner Center down the hall from Per Se. I used to call it the Rich Man's Diner. Mm-hmm. Um, and ended up going back to New Jersey for about a year and a half and opened um, a restaurant with a chef friend um, as the GM. I was, I don't know, 25 at the time. Learned a lot of things not to do, but did it with someone else's money. So great. Um and that was when I went back to New Jersey after being in New York for a little bit. And I was like, oh, cool. I can kind of pretend that I'm a big deal, even though I don't really know that much and so forth. Did that for a little bit, then came back into New York as and was hired as a sommelier at a restaurant called Oceana in Midtown. It was a restaurant that had been around, I think, for almost 20 years. has had uh, a Michelin star for a very long time, two Michelin stars at some points. Um, it was right smack in Midtown. We would do massive numbers and massive covers. And really right after about a month of being there, I was then moved into a uh, assistant general manager role there instead of sommelier, which um, was, you know, a great thing, a good thing. Um, and kind of still was involved in the wine program there. And at that point, I think I actually met other people who were studying to take their advanced exam. And at that point, I started going to tasting groups. And that was when I was exposed to other MSs. I think prior to that, the only time I ever met him in MS, so never forget, I just passed my intro and I'm at a champagne tasting in this very prolific um, MS who had been around for a while, comes up to me and points at my intro opinion. He's like, oh, when did you get that? I was like, oh, last month. And he's like, are you in any tasting groups? And I had no idea who he was. He told me his name and so forth. Then he gives me a card and he leaves and it's his MS card. And I'm like, holy shit, that's the first MS I ever met. And I just mm-hmm. totally blew up. <laughs> um, as, save for exam experiences. But so yeah, back to Oceana, and there was when I was tasting and so forth, and was just kind of a group of, that was when I really got involved and felt a part of the sommelier community in New York. Um, I met tons of friends, one of which will be officiating, and, the, and another one of which will be emceeing mine and Jane's wedding at the end of the year. Um, just made incredible friends through that, lifelong friends, just through studying and tasting and preparing for the advanced exam. And that evolved forward. Um, and I think that that was when, when I was there, that was when I, when people, I guess, knew that I was a person, you know, like, <laughs> like where, um, Helpful. you know, and, and I passed my advanced exam probably, I want to say I started there in January and I passed my advanced exam that following October. And then, Someone that I was tasting with in that group, and my tasting group was a sommelier at 11 Madison Park, and there had been some movement at EMP um, that opened up. They were opening the Nomad, so they were moving some things around, and there was an opportunity to come aboard on the sommelier team there, um, and I applied, and um, through this person's recommendation, um, and ended up getting the job and coming on board um, I guess March of 2012. Right, and and how long did you end up working at? I was at Eleven Madison Park for five years. Um, was that by far the longest tenure you've had? In oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think I don't know that I really made it three years anywhere else. Um, I think everything else probably was less or just around three. And I remember getting when I got that job, I went and told another MS, uh, Laura Manick, that I had done that and. Um, or, and I remember, uh, 
Dustin, the MS who hired me, said that, you know, he was talking to her and she's like, good for you. You got John. Like, that's awesome. So I think at that point, um, I was a valuable employee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think people knew that, that I, I was serious. And, you know, I, I, in March of 2012, I signed on, um, and was just like had every ounce of any experience or anything that I thought I had ever known about restaurants, about wine, about service, just kind of made really small because, you know, yeah, I had worked at a Michelin star level. Yes, I had worked, you know, with some great wine, but by no means did I ever work at that level. And I remember sitting in the in the interview with Will, the owner, and and saying, you've never worked at this level before. And I remember saying to him, well, I've worked at levels. And he's like, no, you've whatever you think you've done, you've never done before. Sounds like uh, that scene in The Matrix where right. you, you were Neo and talking right. to Morpheus. And exactly. Like, Forget everything you know. Exactly. And, you know, and, and it was hard. It was the first time I was never really a nervous person. I remember the first lineup when I was, I think I was just hired. And I was like just standing in lineup, sweating and nervous. And I was like, this is, and my friend Jeff, the guy who got me the job, turned around and was like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I'm just, I've never been nervous before in comparison to this. It was crazy. Um, and... You know, at that point, that was when I think, you know, in the years that followed, um, I think that I went from being a ambitious, um, kind of, you know, maybe loud mouth at times, still loud mouth, but just, I think just, uh, I really was able to mature and understand the complexities of service and restaurants and, and in ways that I didn't even knew, know existed. Mm. Um, you know, and that again also furthered translate into wine knowledge as well um you know i remember i i started in saying to uh um uh i'm uh one of the sommeliers there and we were talking about jamay and i was like what i don't know what jamay is and he's like you don't know what jamay is i'm like no and i was like shit i don't know and i tasted it i was like okay wow this is this is pretty badass um and to the point of just like you know that was kind of my, my thing. Like I, I maybe had Jean-Louis Chauve once or twice. I had never tasted DRC. I didn't know who Francois Carillon was, um, or Louis Carillon. I, I was definitely, I'd never had Ravino before, you know, I had had, you know, eighties Margot and Ekem and things like that. And, you know, slightly showier wines, slightly showier wines. Like I had, I had had, you know, um, I had had my fair share of Barolo. Holland Estate, that right. kind of thing. But, like, I had never had, like, you know, 50-year-old Conterno. Real, like, like, was like, real this some was like, This was, like, serious stuff. And, yeah. and it got to the point where it was kind of every day. Um, you know, I think first growths were only exciting when myself and my neighboring Sam were o- opened all five combined in one night. Like, yeah. that's when first growths got exciting. Yeah. Um, it was just so uh, on another level. Um, and, and through the years there was able to really kind of evolve and push forward and contribute immensely to the service that was there. Um, and be, and really kind of drive the creative forces behind wine service. Um, and the last two years I was the head somewhere. And then, yeah, Jane came on, 
Um, Jane and I had a, a pretty long on and off dating relationship when she first moved to New York and um, <clears throat> didn't really know her before then. And I think we were not seeing each other at the time and we were looking for someone and I was like, Dustin, you know who I should, who you should hire. And he's like, cool. I was like, Jane, I said, are you sure about that? I said, dude, she's the right person for the job. And I know she's looking. So he runs to the office and emails her this like kind of cryptic, Hey, we're looking for someone. If you know anyone <laughs> kind of email. Um, and then I turned to someone else who I had been working with for three years at the time. And I was like, I'm probably going to marry Jane, huh? And he's like, yeah, you are. Um, <laughs> so fast forward two years, she gives notice. We're working together. We're living together. Um, and she, that's when kind of Attica approached her um, through a mutual connection. Someone who was managing Attica actually had, to, had worked at EMP prior to that um, and was always trying to get back to Australia. Yeah. So he was at... Um, at Attica as the general manager, his name's Kevin McSteen, and he reached out to Jane via Facebook mm-hmm. after he found out that she gave notice, and we're like, ha, 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 funny, Australia, why would we move there? Um, that's crazy, um, and how would we make it happen? And one day I came home from work, and I'm like, you know what, Jane? Screw it. Let's go. Um, and that was the first time I ever made a decision that wasn't based strictly on work, a life decision that wasn't driven by work. Um, and so we made that decision about a year and a half later, um, a, a part of me, an hour and a, a month and a half later, um, we got engaged and a month and a half hour after that, we were in Australia. Mm. And so it was actually whilst you, once you guys had actually moved out here that, uh, you became master sommelier. Uh, but how yeah. long was the, the preparation? Like when did you, did you always kind of say that's, that's where it ends? Like, you know. I think it's, it's was something where it kind of, you don't stop. I think, um, I had stopped pursuing the advanced. I didn't pursue the advanced for four years after passing the certified. I almost didn't even know how to. And then when other people were doing it, I joined in and put myself out there. And then after I wasn't going to, I think I first went in 2013 and I wasn't going to. And Dustin was like, yeah, you should do it. You should do it. You should do it. Um, and I think his just faith and belief that I could do it one day was very important in pursuing it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I think that um, it just kind of happened. I definitely, uh, I just got to the point where I didn't know how not to pursue it anymore. It was the only thing that I, it was just what, what I did. It was, I went to work, I woke up, I studied, I went to work. Maybe I went out at night. Maybe I wasn't going out at night. If it was a serious study time, I go to tasting group a few times a week, and that was just the routine. It was kind of the, the life that you lived. You let it consume you in New York. That was what all serious sommeliers in New York did until they decided they didn't want to be an MS. And that was usually after you know six or seven tries and and not succeeding. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were you know late twenties, early thirties in New York, and you were in some way at an ambitious restaurant, you were pursuing the exam. Otherwise, you were an outcast. Mm. So it's just a sort of the, the community, uh, the some community, yeah. you kind of push each other and like that, does that oh, competitive yeah. side of things come into it? And you certainly, I mean, there was, you know, always competitions and it was always like, Oh, you saw, you saw your study group buddies at, um, at competitions, um, which, you know, and, and for me, competitions were always a great way to gauge your, 
progress. Mm -hmm. um, there's the internet. I think the U the U.S. Um, <clears throat> is not a part of the ASI, which does the best subway in the world competitions. Yeah. Um, I think mainly the people who decide whether it's going to be a part of that or not are not into the um, speaking in a second language requirement because um, sure. it's not necessarily uh, as evil even as a playing field. That's not necessarily my opinion, but um, that's kind of how it goes. So the Guild of Sommeliers would have their annual Top Som competition, which um, would encompass anyone who wanted to to go through it. You would do a uh, online exam which would give you regional finals, which would be essentially a recreation of an exam, but with maybe not so fair game kind of objective questions and performance requirements. Uh, and then you would go into a finals competition with that. And I remember the first year I took the online exam and, and I didn't get through and I took the MS that year. And then the next year I got through the um, theory online and made it into the semifinals or the regional finals. And I remember saying at when they gave me my feedback, they're like, how do you think you did? I was like, well, I know that I have improved. I don't know that I've improved enough, but, and I think that became kind of, you competed against yourself to try to just be, improve and get better, mm -hmm. which is, you know, the ultimate way to travel down a path toward a goal mm -hmm. is to just always kind of improve. And for me, I think it was just working at 11 Madison Park, a restaurant that, you know, who realized its ambitions, but the ambitions were to be the greatest at everything that ever has existed at all time. I mean, we were, uh, we, you were working with under kind of the expectation that when anyone came into your restaurant, you were going to be the best meal that they had that year and possibly in their life. Mm -hmm. So I had to be the best sommelier experience that every person I interacted with had experienced, Yeah, which is, was not something that we ever took lightly and really wears on you, but it was that kind of, I think mindset that translated through to the exams, through preparation and, and, and really just life in general. Mm. But like, it sounds like that sort of fit in with what, what sort of had happened to you, especially when you started to, you know, five years later, it, there's a, there's a big difference between cocky and confident right? and sort of having the confidence where it just becomes second nature. It's effortless. And you just know you. I know my craft. I right. know exactly what I'm doing. I step onto that floor, and no one can touch me. And it's right. sort of like, you know, the way Michael Jordan w would walk onto a basketball court and just know, no well, one's no one's touching me. Totally. And what's interesting is I think that when you do become confident in your own abilities, you start to listen and to observe, and you actually then begin to learn again. Um, or even more, and you learn more valuable things. I think that there's a point where, you know, you go in and that's kind of, you're preparing for the exam and people get cocky and all so forth and this and that. And then you go and get shot down. But it's not until you realize that you're just focusing on your own performance and you lose kind of the cockiness and you become confident. You start to really observe and understand and listen to what other people bring to the table. Mm. And I think that further informs your development. And, and, and you're understanding how you fit into the right to you know like right and what you can play i mean it's funny uh at emp we used to use miles davis as a, a really big cultural kind of map and his mantra and what he did and how he broke away but he was also famous for a quote that he said that it's not about the notes that you play it's about the notes that you don't play mm -hmm. and you know a cocky person would try and play every single note 
as loud as they can, but a confident person would only play the notes that contributed the most to the higher mm-hmm. ambition or the mm-hmm. overall picture and, mm-hmm. um, and also be able to devote themselves to that and, and shine. So I think that's kind of a lesson that I'm still learning. And I think that is, is super valuable uh, across anything in life, not just the industry. But in the same way that Miles Davis would always handpick the best musicians mm-hmm. who are out there to support what he was doing, obviously he was Miles Davis, but right. he wouldn't be anything without, you know, in the same way, you know, totally. in that restaurant, whether it's on the floor or in the kitchen, you know, you're nothing without the support around you because you can't do it on your own. Yeah. Um, one of the great, you know, modern day restaurateurs of New, of New York in the US, Danny Meyer, I remember reading an article in an interview and, and it might even be in his book, I don't remember, but he has a quote that's, uh, that goes, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yeah. Um, which I think, you know, again, goes, dovetails into that Miles Davis thought and, and really anything. Um, I think it kind of takes a lot to be like, oh, I'm the smartest person in the room. And you almost feel guilty trying to even be like, okay, should I be here? But that's just the idea of saying, can I learn? Can I find myself in a place where I can learn? Yeah. Seek out opportunities where you can learn more about Exactly. yourself and your craft. Exactly. Um, but at the same time, I don't think it, it, it needs to be done in a certain way. You, you don't just walk somewhere and someone's going to bestow everything on you. It, it really just, it, the onus of that, of learning relies on you. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't just, it's not through osmosis and it's not through, you know, um, being deserving of something. It's, it, it, it's just kind of getting in the door. It's what you do afterwards that counts. So um, I've been meeting with uh, with Jane, yeah. your lovely fiance, for for the last how many years? Probably a little bit more than a year. She got yeah. here mid February. Um, in terms of obviously our jobs, um, but I've been interested to ask her how she's taken the opportunity to expand her knowledge and experience of Australian wine, and I'll ask you the same question. Yeah. How have, you, have you enjoyed the experience, um, you know, exploring Australian wine? Obviously, you had the opportunity to, to do some vintage work here yeah. as well. Um, I thoroughly enjoy it. I think that we took our first – I got here the end of March, March 30th last year. We took our first wine trip to Beechworth over Easter, and we're driving up. We're driving along, and everything that is Australian, really, that matters is just through study context. It's not through anything else. And we're driving up, and and we're and I see a sign. Oh, look! And we saw a sign for Nagambi Lakes. We're like, so we pull off the road, we go visit to Belk and so forth, and um, we get on this conversation about how um, we've just been so impressed by everything that we drink here. And I forget what the actual words she used were, but there was a comment of essentially like. Australian wine is the new Australian wine is better than what's going on in the US or more interesting than what's going on in the US. And I had said that maybe that's just because we're approaching Australian wine with a different point of view. And we talked about it, argued about it and whatnot and so forth. And I think that I've been able to see one, I've been thoroughly blown away by the community and the industry that is wine Australia. Um, but what it's done is it's caused me to be even more interested in going back to the U.S. and experiencing the U.S. through, you know, the experience of, you know, so some ways and people in Australia say, wow, the most exciting thing in, in the new world is the U.S. And we're in the U.S. saying, wow, the most exciting thing that's going on in the new world is Australia. 
Well, that kind of what I realized is that Australia is amazing. And I think that maybe Australia in some ways need to kind of look back and see what's going on here and really respect it. But in turn, it's taught me that when I go back to the U.S., I need to look at it through the eyes of not a jaded somebody living in New York that only drinks Burgundy mm. um, because thanks to Australia's tax system, <laughs> I don't drink Burgundy here. Um, <laughs> I drink Australian wine here. Um, and it's just been completely delightful. Um, and we've really uh, just grown to love so many different things. Um, I think the Italian variety movement in Australia is incredible. I don't think there's, pretty easy to say that there's no other new world country or really country outside of Italy that does Italian varieties as well as Australia, but it's due to their abundance. Um, you know, we're huge fans of, um, kind of old vine, sand grown Grenache and, um, part of the outskirts of the Barossa. I think that's extremely unique to Australia. Um, and very special. There's, um, just been blown away by how the international understanding of Australian Riesling has nothing to do with actually what goes on in Australia for Riesling and that the best Riesling in Australia, and at least in my own opinion, is not made in the Clare Valley or the Eden Valley. Um, but they do make some good wine there too. <laughs> um, I'll probably learn to I mean, like, yeah, wines, like Eden Valley and Clare as far as a region. Right. Oh, for sure. And, but and, I think, that, and that has more to do with how much Riesling is made there. For sure. But uh, yeah, like there are and obviously the pockets or, or producers. From, yeah. I think there's just an inability to break away from making a Riesling the historical way a Clare Valley Riesling would be made. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's just been other people in the outskirts that we've tasted wine from, and we're just like, yes, this is what we want. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity to do that does exist, obviously, I would imagine, in Eden or Clare, but um, it's just kind of not what we're drawn to at the moment. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, we've just been so enthralled by... Regional Victoria, um, I think Victoria, in, in specifically speaking, is probably we found to be the most exciting state, you know, in general. Um, we were able to go to Adelaide in South Australia for a weekend this Easter um, and loved that we've been out to Margaret River. Other parts of um, Victoria, down to Gippsland, um, and just can't wait to do more. Awesome. Well, uh, it has been absolutely fantastic uh, having the opportunity to sit down and chat with you about your background, and and I uh, obviously appreciate your time. Um, do you want to let people know about any social media accounts <laughs> that you potentially want them to um, Well, on? first off, it's been a privilege to be able to share my story um, and to think that people want to listen to it is, um, is always just a really special feeling. Um, I can be found on Instagram and Twitter. Not that I'm very um, seen. Not that I'm very active on either of those. At DJ underscore Gramanon. Um we were at. I was working at EMP and um, thought it was when I first stumbled upon Gramanon. I was like, oh, that'd be a funny DJ name. I've never been a DJ before <laughs> or anything, and um, I just decided that this would be my Instagram account because I thought it was funny, um, and I've stuck with it. Um, it doesn't mean that I'm a, um, lover of natural wine or whatnot. Um, I am a lover of the Rhone. Um, so I picked it and I do love the wines that Cramanon makes, but I'm not affiliated with them. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, the 
haven't really shared this too much, but the formation of a portfolio of Australian wines to be brought into the U.S. under um, the banner of Legend. Um, so the uh, Legend Australia is our website. There's nothing on it but a coming soon and a logo. Um, and then our Instagram handle is Aus Wine Legends. Um, Sorry, AUS Wine Legends. As opposed to OZ? Yeah, essentially. Well, that's funny. Understanding why it's OZ, it's like, okay, it's really AUS. Yes. (laughs) But uh, but yeah, not too much material on those at this point. But stay tuned. But yeah, stay tuned for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And uh, I look forward to to finding out uh, what the, the next movement is. Totally. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. And you can find me on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm at Intrepid Wino. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. Uh, you can also find my YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino. Lots of different videos there, including my uh, Let's Taste series, where I open Australian and New Zealand wines and share my impressions. Uh, and also my own winemaking uh, experiences uh, in the first two vintages of the Vino Intrepido project. Uh, Vino Intrepido wines, of course, are now available. Please do get in contact with me if you'd be interested in trying some. Uh, subscribe to the Intrepid Wino YouTube channel. Uh, make sure that you leave some comments, um, uh, likes, uh, share it on social media i I love uh, for you to uh, check out some more of my content Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on any number of different podcast sharing apps and programs including itunes stitcher player fm podbean iHeartRadio. subscribing means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available Uh, it's also a great way um, to leave feedback as i mentioned at the start by leaving a five-star rating and a review uh, which helps get the podcast out to more wine loving listeners just like you all that information is available on my website, intrepid10.com. Uh, lots of other content there as well, including my writings, uh, my journeys around the world. Uh, and uh, please do get in contact with me via the website. I'd love to hear from you. But until next time, guys, bye. Earbuds, Melbourne's podcast network. EarbudsNetwork.com